Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Did you know that grasslands account for between 20 and 40% of the world's land area? Generally open, fairly flat and accessible, grasslands exist on every continent except Antarctica. Ecologically as important as, but different than, other large ecoregion types such as forests or deserts or coasts, grasslands are even more vulnerable to pressure from human populations for settling, for planting, for livestock, for development. Threats to natural grasslands, as well as the wildlife that live on them, include farming, overgrazing, invasive species, illegal hunting, and climate change. At the same time, one study found California's grasslands and rangelands could store more carbon than forests because they are less susceptible to wildfires and drought. Still, less than 10% of the world's grassland is currently protected, in large part due to lack of understanding around their ecological role and best management practices, which is where Dr. Justin Long comes in. An assistant professor in the Forestry, Fire, and Rangeland Department at Cal Poly Humboldt, Justin focuses on adapting restoration practices for changing climates and integrating socioeconomic and management perspectives to understand restoration outcomes. He's dedicated to promoting multi-use landscapes that balance range productivity and conserve native plant biodiversity. He is likewise dedicated to the support of biodiversity and climate resilience through grassland restoration across the globe and to mentorship and fostering the growth of aspiring ecologists to join in this work. In our ongoing exploration of who gardeners are, where gardeners are, and what they are growing in this world and why that matters to all of us, Justin, I am so pleased to welcome you to Cultivating Place. Thank you, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for that kind introduction. I would love for you to share with listeners, if you had a sort of manifesto for the importance of plants in your life, personally and professionally, what might that manifesto be, Justin? Plants are really important in my life. I don't think I always knew that growing up. I grew up in Irvine, California, and so it's a little bit more developed, and I didn't really have that much exposure back then. And then when I came to college, I really started to discover native plants through doing a variety of internships, and I just really discovered a strong passion for plants and native plants. And ever since then, it's been really important for me to know and have a relationship with plants and the land I'm in. And it helps me really feel more at home. And every spring when I go out to a familiar grassland, for example, feels like I'm going out to greet friends. Every time I move somewhere, it's really important for me to kind of learn those plants because it really helps me feel that connection, gives me kind of a, a sense of place and being. You were raised in Irvine. California, which is down south in the Los Angeles basin. 
And I would love to unpack a little bit more around your germination story to doing the work that you are currently doing, uh, especially as it relates to tying together conservation and socioeconomic outcomes through grassland management. Like it, it seems very diverse an approach, and I'm guessing that came from a perspective rooted from childhood on, Justin. So share with us, if you will, a little bit more about the people and places and plants that grew you into a person who would find this to be his path. I always had somewhat of a passion for plants. My parents really loved to garden and uh, they had a really nice garden in the front and backyard. And I would always help out with that. And I always had ideas of myself thinking about um, how it would be nice to grow some fruits and vegetables and thinking about kind of breeding them and cross-pollinating. And I kind of always had a passion for plants in that way, but I didn't realize it at the time. And um, my parents, they're immigrants from uh, Vietnam. And so I guess uh, growing up for them, they were exposed to a harsh environment. So um, understandably, when I was growing up, they never really weren't that interested in um, kind of going out into kind of the wilderness and doing and going camping and stuff like that. And so most of the exposure I got was at home um, and really kind of learning that. And then when I got to college, like I mentioned, I did a lot of restoration intern or a lot of internships, generally speaking, because um, I really wasn't exactly sure of my passion at the time. I came in as a chemistry major um, to UC Santa Barbara and I liked chemistry and it was interesting to me, but I felt like at that time or reflecting now, it was really more, I was trying to kind of go on a path that my parents had originally hoped for. And I mean, they're happy with what I'm doing now, but, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so like they wanted me to be a doctor or a pharma, phar pharmacist or a pharmacologist or, or something like that. And I just quickly found out that just wasn't the path for me. And so I did all kinds of internships and, I eventually landed on kind of ecological internships and environmental internships. And Give us some examples of those, would you? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, it first started at, um, I volunteered at this kind of local housing complex. Um, I think it was called like a, it was like a stork housing complex in Santa Barbara or Glita. And uh, they were just doing vertical restoration inside their kind of community complex. And it was oh. just kind of led by um, just uh, one of the, women that lived there and that was part of the HOA there. Um, and, and yeah, I thought it was really cool to kind of see that restoration process and that ecology kind of integrated in a place where people live and can enjoy um, and can really benefit from some of those aspects of restoration. Um, and so that was really interesting to me. And um, yeah, and so that's kind of one of the ones I did. And I also kind of participated in compost and related internships and actually got a job eventually as a worm wrangler, which is my handle on online. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so I, I worked for the Department of Public Worms and that was really fun too. And that was great. Um, okay, wait, you have to, you have to tell us a little more there, Justin, what does a worm wrangler do? Oh yeah. So uh, yeah, that's, it's a really unique thing to uh, UC Santa Barbara. <laughs> in my opinion, we have uh, this thing called the Department of Public Worms, which is a part of the associated student um, kind of positions. And so uh, a lot of times you know, campuses have kind of like a recycling arm 
And so mm -hmm. we were part of like a, a smaller branch of the recycling group called the Department of Public Worms. And uh, so we pretty much biked around in these little uh, bike tricycles with these wooden carts attached. And we would go pick up uh, pre-prepped uh, or like uh, when you're prepping food and like peeling and cutting stems and stuff like that, we would go and collect all that food waste essentially. And uh, we would bring it back to our kind of uh, station in where we had uh, worm bins. Oh, that's great. Um, and yeah, so uh, we had these red worms and we would basically kind of collect compost from around campus dining commons and we would put them into these bins and kind of sequentially kind of organize them and kind of check on the worm health, make sure they were kind of laying um, eggs, so to speak, so that they had a healthy population. Um, and then we would uh, harvest the compost um, after a few months and we would use it in our local community garden bed, which we would then donate um, to the local food bank, or we would also make worm tea, <laughs> worm tea with it, yeah. um, which is essentially putting some uh, worm castings in a mesh bag and um, putting it in a bucket of water with some percolation and a little bit of molasses. And, um, and then we would sell that out to the local community as well, um, usually upon re request. But yeah, it was a really great, interesting, and uh, super unique time of my yeah. life. I bet. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I did that throughout my undergrad. And that was really fun for me to kind of learn more about the guard, like an organic gardening process and um, learning about how to kind of really productively use food waste and engage with uh, local community members about gardening and uh, worms, which people are always uh, shocked to hear. We had a Department of Public Worms. <laughs> Best title ever. Um, well, yeah. and I have followed you for for a really long time and always kind of wondered about the backstory to Worm Wrangler. So that's great. And this also puts you in this kind of circular economy mindset with people of like mind with you. So you are you are learning in your internships, but you are learning in your classes. No doubt you are learning in your social network of people who care about these kinds of things. When do you decide you are going to go on to graduate school in this sort of vein and become a doctor in receiving your doctorate, Justin? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess there's I'll have to briefly mention too, one of the reasons I kind of changed, not changed, but was inspired to change too, but uh my environmental studies major um, at UCSB is also because of my now husband, Patrick. And uh, we kind of met through a kind of like a social event. And um, like I've mentioned, I, I learned that chemistry wasn't for me. And uh, he was an environmental studies major. And that kind of also inspired me to go out and look for those internships. And so we eventually landed in a similar kind of internship place called CBER uh, for short, but now they're called uh, the Vernon and Mary Cheadle Center for Biodiversity and Ecological Restoration, which mm -hmm. is a mouthful. But uh, yeah, I that was kind of like one of my permanent positions or student internship positions, aside from the Worm Wrangler position at Santa Barbara. And that's kind of where I really learned a lot about restoration and where I kind of ended up kind of moving on after I graduated from UCSB. And I actually worked for that restoration com company for a few years prior to going back to graduate school or go, going to graduate school at UC Santa Cruz. And uh, I really learned a lot there, um, especially from one of my previous supervisors and mentor, Wayne Chapman, who was uh, essentially one of the project restoration managers and the greenhouse manager. And 
really had, he had worked there also uh, starting as a student for quite some time when I had started. And so I really learned a lot from him. And I also learned a lot about how practitioners, even in a well-funded place like Santa Barbara, where there is permanent annual, like a year round resources for restoration work, which is not common for most projects in most areas. Even they had difficulty kind of accessing scientific resources and incorporating it. And people I knew at that time when I was in practice felt a disparity between science and practice. Also, mm -hmm. which I later later learned that to be named as the science practice gap. Yes. Because they often felt, yeah, scientists weren't really talking to them. And they felt like a lot, practitioners often felt like the work that scientists or academics were doing um, was a bit removed. And uh, sometimes practitioners already kind of maybe knew the answer to it, um, or it's kind of uh, either too theoretical or kind of not really appropriate and kind of translational scale, so to speak. Oftentimes in research, I'm, I've come to learn, you get a lot of money for small scale research. You might get a, like $100,000 or something or a couple hundred thousand dollars to do research in the field, but maybe with one by one meter plots replicated or maybe at a few kind of, a lot, maybe a little bit larger, but something similar to that. But in restoration, people maybe get like $20,000, $30,000 for a specific project. And so when we kind of think about those kind of disparities in, in resources, oftentimes the recommendations, um, unless we kind of work with practitioners and talk to them, often don't necessarily always match. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're speaking today with Dr. Justin Long, Assistant Professor in the Forestry, Fire, and Rangeland Department at Cal Poly Humboldt, focused on grassland restoration. Grasslands being some of the planet's most pressured natural ecosystem types and some of our most valuable for climate resilience and biodiversity support. We'll be right back for more with Justin after a quick break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Cultivating Place is on the brilliant threshold of completing its eighth full year of production, elevating the way we think and talk about gardening elucidating the true scope and scale and substance of who gardeners are, where they are, what they're growing, and why this matters to all of us. More than 400 episodes engaging with, exploring, encouraging, and emboldening gardeners to dig more fully into their power to grow our world better, environmentally, socially, economically, and spiritually through the people, places, and plants that grow them individually and us collectively. In November of 2023, the Caddo Shaw Foundation, which funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity, awarded Cultivating Place a $75,000 matching grant to support our goals for the future, including adding to our work new, recorded live with an audience, episodes conducted around the country, highlighting people, places, and plants growing us all better. 
To date, an incredible $40,000 has been pledged by individuals and groups to help us meet this match. Thank you to everyone so far who has chipped in with the fertile seed money for this goal in 2024. And this includes all of you who so generously support Cultivating Place with one-time gifts or recurring monthly donations through the support button at cultivatingplace.com. While all of the donations made through the support button at cultivatingplace.com will help us meet this match, if you're interested in participating with a larger tax-deductible donation, please make your check payable to North State Public Radio and mail it to Phil Wilkie at North State Public Radio, 35 Main Street, Suite 101. Chico, California, 95928. Make sure to note on your check that this is specifically for the Cultivating Place matching grant. I am, as you might imagine, humbled but also catalyzed by this challenge and opportunity being offered to Cultivating Place. And I am so grateful to all of you in helping us meet this moment. From my garden heart to yours, thank you. Make your contributions of support through the support button at the top of every page at cultivatingplace.com or make your check payable to North State Public Radio and mail it to the station with a note indicating it's for the matching grant. From $1,000 a year to $10 per month, every contribution helps this program you love hearing grow. We're back now to our conversation with restoration ecologist Justin Long. Justin is a Cal Poly Humboldt assistant professor in the Department of Forestry, Fire, and Rangeland, studying grassland management. As we come back, Justin is sharing more about his journey to this focus of his work through his studies at University of California, Santa Barbara, and University of California, Santa Cruz, where he was eventually at their Cheadle Center for Biodiversity. CBER was formed in 2005, and actually before that, it had existed as Campus Herbarium, a museum, and so it was called the Museums for uh, Systematics. That eventually became the Cheadle Center for Biodiversity and Ecological Restoration to have both that museum component and the restoration agency. And it's got a lot of management areas because of the holdings of UC Santa Barbara and their environmental diversity. Can you talk a little bit about that maybe? Yeah. So um, like I mentioned, UC Santa Barbara, most of it is in the legally designated coastal zone. Um, And a lot of that habitat includes wetlands, and a lot of seasonal wetlands, like called vernal pools, which are um, yes. ephemeral wetlands that only hold water for a period, a small period of time throughout the year. And they are um, biodiversity hotspots that host a wide range of species, both plant and microscopic wildlife. And so anytime any of those were potentially disrupted, we would do restoration work for that 
And uh, oftentimes the mitigation, which is uh, compensation for um, degraded or damaged or completely lost habitat, would be either at least an equal one-to-one -one basis in terms of how much area restored compared to the area affected, or sometimes up to mm -hmm. three times the area. And so a lot of times we actually did have to completely replace vernal pools. And um, we had a guy that drove around a tractor and we kind of um, graded new vernal pools from areas being developed. Often, for example, with campus housing developments, which again, gave me this kind mm -hmm. of really unique perspective in how to integrate not that humans are different than other animals, but so to speak, we often consider humans separate. And so it really gave me a, a really, I feel like unique learning opportunity to kind of see how to really communicate with people about restoration and really how people engage with our restoration activities on a day-to-day -day basis. This is really important foundation to what you're learning, how you are learning it, and how that's going to serve you, your students, and the biodiversity as you make your move up to Cal Poly Humboldt, doing what you're doing there. Do you feel that way? Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like um, my work as a restoration practitioner uh, really strongly influenced um, a lot of my perspectives and pretty much all the research I do now. Yeah. So you were there at the Cheadle Center focusing on these things, specifically the sort of understanding and then communicating of how the restoration was important to the humans. The humans were important to the restoration. And this was important to the campus, the professors who are researchers and educators, as well as the students who might be coming there for this specific kind of work. Yeah, exactly. And during my time there too, I was the coordinator of my site. So I got the chance to really coordinate and engage with students and teach them about restoration. Um, and that kind of, I think, also furthered my passion. And we often did these fun little plant walks uh, where we kind of would walk around the site and I would basically try to teach them site ID of different plants. And for different plants, I would try to give them uh, different kind of sometimes acronyms or different things that might rhyme or uh, or something that might jog their memory of it um, to kind of really help them remember it. And those were, that was always fun too. But yeah, it was really a great opportunity for, I feel like, everyone to kind of engage. Did you complete your PhD there at Santa Barbara? Uh, no. So I just did my undergrad. I got uh, my uh, BS in environmental studies. I started in, as a student in like 2012. And I didn't get a job in my field immediately right after I graduated. And that was okay. I continued to keep touch with the restoration, CBER, the restoration agency. And then in the meanwhile, I worked at a local hydroponic store. And uh, that also gave me a really great perspective, I guess, on working with people in, uh, in customer mm -hmm. service. And um, yeah, and I learned a lot there. And I felt like that was also really formative and in, in really thinking about some of the work and and how to work with a mix of people. But we did kind of sell products kind of across the, through an online store across the nation. And so I was often also interfacing on the phone with with folks from like Mississippi or New York and so on. And those online orders is where I learned a lot about customer service and how people <laughs> talk to, to other people. Yes, communication is key. This is where the science and practitioner gap fails us. This is where the gap is created, right? Yeah, that, that taught me a lot too. But even after that, I, I basically went back to the Cheadle Center 
And like I mentioned, I kind of kept touch at that time. And I kind of came back in because they needed someone to assist with a research project on Lupinus nipomensis, which is uh, this small endangered uh, lupin heat plant species in the Nipomo Guadalupe dunes. And uh, that actually kind of really inspired me also and kind of thought, I, I guess I never really thought I would do research before that. And that was really interesting to me. I felt like I got a chance to kind of learn a lot about this really unique species um, and really learn on how to engage with it and how to how to work and thinking about its management and protection and working in thinking about, uh, I guess, science and, and research at the same time. So that was really kind of one of the things that also kind of got me to think about graduate school and going back into research is working with that uh, Lupinus nipomensis, which I, I still work with to this day. And so this is sort of an interesting branch in your career story because it's here where you're doing this research, or or it seems to me that this is where you are not only being the researcher and being a student, but you are contributing, you are being a practitioner as well in working on the recovery of this species, Lupinus nipomensis. Is this a grassland species? Uh, no, it's actually a coastal dune species. And it really wasn't until I came to Santa Cruz that I, I thought a lot more about grassland management and restoration of grasslands, even though I was doing it at the time. Yeah. So talk to us about that, because I think grasslands is one of these terms that you hear it and you sort of know what it means, but you we don't really know what it means. And when we're thinking about biodiversity loss and climate change, we hear so much about trees and wetlands, but we hear less about these other systems uh, that are equally important. Um, and the research around them is showing them to be even more important. Can you talk about like how you make this move towards focusing on grasslands and then we'll talk about the move maybe up to Humboldt. So I think a lot of that, to be completely honest, was um, guided by my um, my PhD advisors at the time, Karen Hole and Michael Loik, because um, mm-hmm. they were also doing grassland research and plants take a long time to grow. And I didn't necessarily want to be uh, stuck in uh, graduate school for too long. So I wanted to work with a system that was fast and grew well and that I was familiar with and that I could also access locally because it was really important for me to be able to have kind of like this local kind of work and kind of learn and connect with the land I was staying on. Mm -hmm. And so I happened to be lucky enough to kind of be guided towards Younger Lagoon Reserve in Santa Cruz, where I did most of my research. But what really kind of drove my love for grasslands, honestly, is I think right before I went to grad school, me and my husband, we went on this amazing road trip or multiple camping trips and road trips at the time. And I got to drive, we got to go from here, we drove to Yellowstone and the Bison National Range. And we got to see all kinds of beautiful, different types of grasslands I hadn't seen before. And here locally, we were having a bunch of super blooms at the time. I had gone to Carrizo Plain several times and I loved Carrizo Plain. And I also wanted to learn more about wildflowers, which is often a kind of forgotten component of grasslands because oftentimes people hear grasslands, they think, oh, 
it's just grasses. You must be studying grass species, which is true. I do study grass species and I do love grass species too, but I love wildflowers. And um, that's also one of the main reasons I kind of wanted to get into grasslands as well. And I think one of the interesting things for people, especially maybe in the U.S. West, is that grassland takes up a lot of space in in our environments. It is, you know, certainly in California and maybe west of the Rockies, the grasslands that were once rich with native plants are now pretty dominated by non-native grass species, like fast works for the the good and for the the challenging. Yeah. So like, yeah, in California, um, I mean, about 25% or more of the state used to be occupied by grasslands. And now only about 10% of the state um, has grassland habitat. And of that 10% of habitat, um, less than 1% remains as um, kind of what we consider high quality native grassland habitat which is really concerning for a lot of reasons in that you're alluding to. Like California is a biodiversity hotspot, one of few in the world. And our grasslands host a massive amount of diversity. California has over four, I can't remember the figure off the top of my head, but 4,000 to 5,000 plant species. And many of them are endemic. Um, and we have a lot of federally and state threatened and endangered species. And grasslands host a vast majority of those species. And for a lot of grasslands too, we often don't really think about it because we can't see it like we can with a forest. Um, you can see all that that wood and the majestic beauty of, of the giant trees, but grasslands also have large root systems. And I often describe them as underground forests that are really important for kind of saving and preserving our soil carbon, especially in thinking about climate change. Because, you know, if you're out in a grassland, the grasses maybe come up to, well, it depends on the grassland. Uh, maybe they come up to your knee or your waist, or if you're in a really tall grass, then maybe up to your head. But in a forest, it goes out of the sight line. And when a fire comes through or a massive plant mortality drought comes through, a lot of that plant material is going to die back, both in the forest and the grasslands. But a lot of the carbon stays stably stored, um, relatively speaking, in a grassland compared to a forest which has a lot of exposed plant material in, uh, above the surface. Mm. Yeah, which can decompose and recontribute to carbon in the atmosphere. And then when we're thinking about fires, grasslands, yes, they can burn down and burn through the roots, but they don't retain the heat as much. For example, like when I lived in Santa Cruz, there was the large CZU lightning fire complex and it burned mm -hmm. through Big Basin and uh, Henry Cowell. And for months and months after the fire, some of the rootstocks of the redwoods were still burning, releasing carbon and kind of inhospitable for other life around its roots. And so I'm not saying forests aren't important, but sometimes people have a misconception that we need to plant trees where they shouldn't necessarily be planted because yeah. uh, in a forest areas. Um, and I, I, there's a great article about that, which I, I love the term called tyranny of the trees. Especially, <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, and, and so I, I often think about that. And I think people don't really realize or see yet the importance of grasslands because maybe they don't know about all of the vast services and beauty that can support um, right, right. like super blooms, which people often don't connect either. Yeah. Okay. So is there a really simple definition 
of grassland to just sort of summarize everything you were just saying a, a little bit, and then to, to just give people a handle for what it means as an critically important habitat type. And of course, we need forests, but grasslands are their own thing that have served their own purpose over time and have been tended over time by indigenous peoples for the very biodiversity they support, as you were indicating. So a grassland, I would say, is essentially a herbaceous-dominated plant community mm -hmm. with less than, I guess I'll just throw out, less than 20% woody percent cover, um, like what, which would include uh, large shrubs or trees. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it may become a, a savanna or something similar, although savannas can sometimes be considered grasslands. So it gets a little muddy there. But I, I would say a grassland is generally a herbaceous-dominated plant community. In terms of summarizing its services, yeah, I, it's really important for biodiversity and also important for carbon. Also, yeah, cultural resources as well. Uh, both now and then, um, Indigenous peoples were stewarding grasslands and um, still work to steward grasslands and in a lot of the places that I've lived and worked in. And so it's also really important to support that kind of cultural practice and relearning because a lot of indigenous tribes knew kind of were working in the management practices and stewardship practices that were needed and that we kind of are lacking now. Yeah. Yeah. And about what percent of North America is dominated by grassland habitat? Do you, do you know that? figure, Justin? Um, not off the top of my head. Uh, global, so rangelands, for example, they're a little bit more broad than grasslands and may also include uh, more kind of like grasslands interspersed with shrubs and other types of mm -hmm. kind of larger species. And they encompass about 50 to 70% of the planet's terrestrial service, depending on kind of who you're asking and how they're classified and also mm -hmm. interannual variability, which causes systems to sometimes shifts between um, different states. Okay. Okay. So you went and did your doctorate work and you focus now on grassland rangeland management and the very important management of multi-use lands. Describe what this actually means for listeners. Yeah, so I, I think personally multi-use is really important. It's essentially productive use for multiple reasons of a specific system. Some people indicate it needs to be economic. I don't necessarily always believe that. I think it's really important to be able to have these different kind of multi-use systems that can support biodiversity, that can support economic growth because we also need that as our kind of... Um, kind of regional kind of economy relies on it. Mm -hmm. And we also want people to be able to engage with these habitats that provide all kinds of different inherent services that we don't necessarily always think about, like water filtration and erosion control and, and mm -hmm. natural beauty and engaging people in this people in this portion of multi-use and incorporating them and allowing them kind of access to an area is really important to kind of, in my opinion, get them to engage with their kind of sense of place and build a relationship with the land, then later on become more invested in helping to protect this land, which may help gear or prime them towards better understanding the effects of climate change and the actions they can take locally. 
This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're speaking today with Dr. Justin Long, Assistant Professor in the Forestry, Fire, and Rangeland Department at Cal Poly Humboldt. Justin's work is focused on grassland restoration, and he's dedicated to promoting balanced, multi-use landscapes that support native plant biodiversity and climate resilience. We'll be right back for more from Justin after a quick break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. So it's been a while since I shared some of the wonderful notes and messages that regularly come our way about the importance of cultivating place in your days, your lives, your workplaces, and even in your winter rest and dreaming. Donna in Chicago planted a tree in honor of cultivating place and wrote, I am thankful for cultivating place and my ongoing opportunity to be taken so many places through the program. I love Jennifer Jewell's voice and the questions she poses for us all. Rebecca in New York wrote, Your writing and spiritual connections to gardens and gardeners makes me feel and know that there is always fellowship, kindness, and love in our world. Judith in Georgia wrote, Cultivating place is always inspirational, thought-provoking, and searching. Thank you. Diane in Seattle wrote, I love, love, love the podcast. I listened regularly through COVID and am back listening now that I'm retired. You do such an amazing job getting your guests to share their stories in meaningful ways. The show is always inspiring and thoughtful. And finally, Paulina wrote recently on how her garden helped to raise her. I love the Cultivating Place podcast, she says. I planted my first backyard flower garden when I was diagnosed with cancer in 2020. It was a bed full of tulip bulbs that I planted in the fall before my first surgery as an act of hope, something to look forward to through winter, that come spring there would be renewed new life. The garden and gardening brought me back to the seasonality of life and how beautiful things can come out of the darkest places. Flowers, gardens, nature is a constant anchor to those truths. With love and kindness, Paulina. No matter where you listen, how often or why, thank you. I am truly gratified and supported grounded and uplifted at the same time to know that you're out there listening and growing along. We're back now to our conversation with grassland restoration ecologist, Dr. Justin Long of Cal Poly Humboldt. As we come back, Justin is sharing some specifics of how his teaching and research play out on the ground in restoring a site known as the Table Bluff Ecological Reserve, which is uniquely co-managed by the local T. 
Table Bluff Wyatt Tribe and the California Department of Fish and Wildlife in Humboldt County, California. Locally, there's an area that I really enjoy called Table Bluff uh, Ecological Reserve, and it supports um, access for the community allowing them to kind of engage with their local environment and local ecology. It is a reserve that is meant to kind of help preserve biodiversity. There's a, the adobe lily is there, which is a Uh. a special status plant and it helps provide habitat there. It's also um, utilized for grazing for both conservation grazing practices and um, local production. And then it's also very uniquely co-managed by the local Table Bluff Weot tribe in collaboration with um, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And that allows the local Weot tribe to go out and essentially undertake different cultural practices and harvesting and also be engaged with and managing the land that they traditionally stewarded. In this context, when you see what you are what you are working with in a spot like this one you just described to us. What are your greatest hopes for this as a template on how we best use multi-purpose and multi-use land across the country as we move forward? Because as we know, it can go a different way. It can go the way of Let's just put as many cows as we can on that land and we will graze the heck out of it. Or let's pull as many trees off of that land as we possibly can and we will just, you know, log the heck out of it. And the balance of perspective and priority, this is important for us to get right or more right as we move forward. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I I would also say it could go, I, I agree that. That was definitely in my one would be a, a, one of the worst case scenarios, in my opinion. But also excluding people from kind of the part of this multi-use would also, I think, in my opinion, be kind of um, equally kind of troubling because, uh, you know, we need people to be a part of it, to engage. Um, but in terms of it, as a template, I believe that this is a really, really great system for that because it does kind of have all of these different components and kind of co-management with tribal partners um, used for aesthetics and cultural resources and kind of local engagement in the environment, protection of biodiversity. And I I, I neglected to mention, I I do have research out there. I I work more on thinking about how to manage for invasion after um, targeted removal, which is really common in uh, practice, both there and outside of that area. And then the students, it's a great learning opportunity for them and a great opportunity for the area because um, it's great to develop part, uh, a kind of a nice kind of diverse partnership in a, in a particular land area like Table Bluff because we can also come in yearly with a different class, um, with a different uh, group of students. For example, my rangeland restoration class went out this year and we took all kinds of different measurements, which they did as part of their class project um, throughout the semester. Um, And they basically tried to help answer different management concerns and questions um, that they were facing out at Table Bluff in thinking of some future practices that they're going to implement. Yeah. And so I think in terms, I I think that uh, this shows that it can, this type of co-management and multi-use can be successful, um, can be economically productive can be important for protecting biodiversity and for engaging with all different types of communities. 
Um, and I, I think that's a great way to move forward and try to focus our efforts in terms of um, future management. And I think that in being able to communicate well about it, we we do see your work helping with uh, closing that science practitioner gap. And the more someone like me as a home gardener understands the kind of meta thinking around this uh, model of a network um, with balanced priorities, the more we can see that as being applicable to how we tend to all land. Yeah, totally. And, you know, another great example, too, that I, I not in Humboldt County, but Carrizo Plain uh, National yeah. Monument is, I think, a, another amazing example of how we have this amazing co-use, um, although it, it could probably benefit from greater tribal engagement yes. there. Um, there is beautiful wildflower diversity. There's beautiful access. Um, and it's uh, also utilized for grazing as well. And similar in Pinnacles, too. And Pinnacles uh, National Monument and now Park um, are both. Um, they also have kind of that beautiful kind of mixing of co-use for trails and human engagement, but also for biodiversity and habitat. Um, and they also are engaging with the Amamutsin tribe there, um, which is a non-federally recognized tribe um, based out of Santa Cruz and San Jose area. Yeah. So we know we have these models and we know we can replicate them. Uh, whether that's an exact replication or a kind of philosophical adaptation uh, in new circumstances. When you when you think about this, uh, and you are a young professor, and you are early in your career still, Justin, uh, and my New Year's resolution uh, for me and Cultivating Place was to continue to think more like a habitat and less like an individual. When you look forward 10 years, what are your greatest hopes for this work, which I see as gardening on some um, very beautiful and elegant level? Yeah, so I I have a lot of diff different aspirations. I think one of the one of the things I'm working towards right now is um, developing a statewide grassland restoration network. Um, and we're currently piloting it right now, and then we'll be um, kind of opening it up um, for kind of public access. And uh, yeah, we really want to really better understand how to manage our grasslands across the state in a coordinated um, a coordinated way so we can make the most impact um, and preserve kind of the important resources we have. Um, and so right now I'm working with a lot of par with partners, nonprofit and um, and all universities and federal governments and state agencies um, to really kind of try to pull together this network with also collaborators from different universities. Um, and really, uh, my hope is really to help this come into fruition so we can kind of have effective um, and guided restoration where we can kind of share knowledge um, because kind of like what you mentioned to alluded to, it's either are we going to replicate it completely or is it going to be an adaptation? I personally think ecology and and a lot of work, a lot of the work in our environment, everything is really place-based and it's really important to have local ecological knowledge and no one solution fits all. Um, and so being able to share and coordinate restoration practices and knowledge in different areas can help people kind of choose and evaluate what might work best for them and um, 
and yeah, so that's that's one kind of goal that I'm I'm really working towards um, in the future. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, was there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to in some of the the specifics of your work, Justin? I do uh, work a lot in training students, right. and um, and thinking about how to really support anyone that wants to become a scientist or work in natural resources management or in restoration um, and kind of provide a space for people of different minds to come or different backgrounds to come into play because it's really important for us to have diverse perspectives. Um, and I feel like a lot of times when I was kind of looking towards the field, I, I didn't really see many people that kind of reflected my identity. Um, and so that's that's one thing that I've been working a lot towards doing, mm -hmm. um, and and uh, I, yeah. So I mean, I, I personally want. I feel it's really important because one, we we need a lot of different perspectives in order to to really find the right solution. Mm -hmm. But also, I feel like anyone should be able to get into into their passion if they if they want. And one of my goals is really to show show students and kind of younger people that you don't have to necessarily change the the core of who you are to go into a field that doesn't seem like it might fit you. Um, and, and you can, and, and so, so yeah, I've been trying to also think about that a lot also. I think that's a really important point and I'm really glad we got to that because I think it's a field that for a long time uh, has felt uh, stymied by not enough representation uh, across the board uh, in a variety of ways. And the greater the diversity of people we have working in this field, the greater the diversity of solutions we will generate. Exactly. And yeah, so I really hope to support the next generation and kind of thinking up, thinking about the solutions. Um, and uh, yeah, and hopefully we we get somewhere um, soon because we are in a very dire state in our environment. Yeah, yeah. That is great. Oh, okay, so here's your bonus question. If you had five plants you would not want to live or garden or hike without, and maybe these are, maybe these, maybe I should force you to choose grassland plants, Justin, so that so that listeners can get a sense of the beauty and diversity and interesting, interesting lives that make up a grassland. Yeah, well, I think all of them would be grassland. I, I, I do love grasslands now, and I think most of them, other than maybe Lupinus nipomensis, which is really the species that's always kind of really sparked everything for me. That's that's definitely what I couldn't live without, but... um. I think otherwise, I think Stipopulcra, of course, I know a lot of people have said that one, purple needle grass. That's yes. one of my favorite state grasses, the state grass. And I also run the Instagram page for it, although <laughs> not, not so much lately, but uh, but I started the Instagram page for that. So I have a, a great passion for purple needle grass. Um, I also would say uh, Calicordus fimbriatus. All calicordus or mariposa oh. lilies are, are beautiful, yeah. but uh, this calicordus um, or yeah, this calicordus was is found in um, the chaparral of Santa Barbara. And uh, when I was going to Santa Barbara and when I was working there, me and my husband we would go up to this area called Lizard's Mouth every like three to four times a week and just watch sunset. And those were that was one of my my favorite flowers that 
we got to see every year for several months at a time. And I, I feel like I have a really strong connection with that plant. I also, of course, love uh, sky lupin, a lupinus nanus that occurs a lot in grasslands. Um, where I lived in Santa Cruz, I my backyard was uh, Porter Meadow, which is a, a grassland on campus. And we, I would take walks there almost every day. Um, mm. And in the spring, there would be a amazing lush bloom of uh, sky lupin every single year. And it was so beautiful. And, and I definitely love that one a lot. Um, let's see, that that's like four so far. I would also say... Um, Oh, well, uh, there's two, there's two more. I, I definitely love okay. blue dicks. Uh, yeah. Or diploderma. I can't remember the new name. Uh, Capitatum. And uh, that was one of the first bulbs I was exposed to. Geophytes I was exposed to. And um, it's beautiful. I, lo I love learning it. I lo love learning about geophytes, their cultural importance, and has a beautiful flower. And the seeds are so unique. Um, and uh, I love I love dip blue dicks. And then... Uh, Probably my last one would be um, witch's teeth or harlequin lotus, also known as um, Hosakia gracilis, and uh, it's called it's it's I love it because it's so the flower is so unique. It's essentially a, a Fabaceae or a pea plant family, and it has essentially a, I think a yellow top and a pink bottom. The pink, the keel and um, wing petals are pink and then the banner is yellow a bright yellow and a hot pink and i just love the bright yeah the bright colors and the contrast of the colors and uh yeah i, I mean i could go on there's there's so many <laughs> there's, there's no there's so many i could even choose five um there, there's so many plants that i love so um like i said there to me it's really important to know those plants they they're to me i feel like they're almost like a friend a familiar face and when I feel stress or discomfort, I know I can go out there and see them and feel better. Uh, thank you so much for being a guest on the program today. I so appreciate kicking off the new year with your passion and knowledge and, um, and enthusiasm, Justin. Yeah, thank you so much, Jennifer, for having me. It was a pleasure. Dr. Justin Long is an assistant professor in the Forestry, Fire, and Rangeland Department at Cal Poly Humboldt. He's dedicated to researching, understanding, and promoting multi-use landscapes, especially grasslands, that balance productivity and conserve native plant biodiversity. He's likewise dedicated to the support of biodiversity and climate resilience through grassland restoration across the globe and to mentorship and fostering the growth of aspiring ecologists who will continue to expand this ethos and this work. Justin's work and approach has just been offered a big vote of confidence in the form of grants totaling $2 million from the California Bountiful Foundation, the research branch of the California Farm Bureau, and the California Climate Action Seed Grants. In partnership with several state and federal agencies, Justin is forming the Grassland Restoration Actions, Science, and Stewardship Network, which will work with additional partners to develop climate-smart restoration protocols and tools related to drought-resilient plant selection and site assessment. The project will increase access to the best available science for restoring coastal California grasslands, 
transform nature-based solutions, strengthen climate resiliency, and leverage existing resources. Given that in many ways, our gardens themselves are modeled on the forms and functions of grasslands, this is work that grows us all. Join us again next week when we're joined by three members of the Institute for Applied Ecology, currently preparing for the upcoming National Native Seed Conference being held virtually February 7th and 8th. Conference highlights include Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland and Bureau of Land Management Director Tracy Stone Manning discussing the new Interior-led Native Seed Initiative. That's next week right here. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you, through the support button at the top of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription, and communications support from Ohio-based Deanna Newport and Matt Valiga. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.